The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. And really nice to be with everyone this morning. Big, deep welcome to all of us spinning in this world. And uh, we have about a month left of this series of talks on the Buddha's instructions for mindfulness of breathing, this Anapanasati Sutta, Discourse of the In and Out Breath. And as you can see, we went through um, three quarters of it today. As you can see, it really covers the entire path. And uh, you probably notice bringing the actual physicality of breathing in and out. It's just the first few instructions. The rest of the 16 really have to do with healing the body and the mind, opening to the nature of the mind, and then the last set of four instructions that we've been looking at more specifically these last couple of weeks, really keeping in mind the process of letting go. Because, you know, we all like the idea of letting go, and we all know something about letting go in kind of ordinary sense. But again, even though just in ordinary ways we've learned a thing or two about letting go in life, like anybody in a relationship with another human being, we have to let go to some degree of like what we want to happen because we're sharing our life with another human being or several human beings, depending on our situation. So we've all learned about letting go, but it's interesting we haven't made a real art and science. Like, what is, what is it actually in my subjective experience? And how can I really deeply understand it so that I can explore the nth degree of what it is to let go? Like there's a phrase in the early Buddhist teachings, um, giving up the substrata, you know, and that word substrata is, uh, it's not like that foundational rock that's below the surface. And what is that foundational rock? You know, not the, not the hummus or humus rather <laughs> at the top, but you know, getting into the bedrock. And what is that? Well, it's these fixed ideas these wrong, you know, unhelpful ideas that the mind fixes on. And, you know, in Buddhist, Buddhism, we often talk about it as self-view, self-centered ideas. And most of our ideas, one way or another, are self-centered ideas. You know, even if I'm going on and on about taking care of all beings in the world, it can also have a sort of grounded in self-centeredness, like I have these enlightened ideas about caring for all beings. Somehow it always revolves around us. And even if we're really praising another person, the subcontext could be, yeah, I'm not as good as that person. So it's still about me. It's still about a self-centered idea. And this is the chronic habit. So today I want to talk about uh, this last step, you know, the 16th step, which is breathing in, contemplating this giving up, breathing out, contemplating, giving up. 
And it isn't like we wait to the last step, you know, when the mind is in this really beautifully refined, insightful state to practice giving up. Like I said, we're giving up all the time. And we can say in the Buddhist tradition, you know, the path, you know, when we actually look at how the Buddha taught, it begins with letting go or giving up. These are two related words, the letting go and the giving up. It begins with that and it ends with that. And as a lot of you know, um, some of the first things the Buddha would say to people is just about the happiness of dana, generosity. And, you know, we used to, back in the day when we were in a room together, you know, once a month somebody in the community would give a talk about dana, just because that's how our organization operates, as many of you know. You know, we don't charge for anything. We offer all of our programs freely as a free gift. No strings attached. We don't fundraise. We don't talk about money very much at Kamagam because we really want it want what we do to be in that spirit of generosity. And whatever comes back, we receive as a free giving. And whatever we do, the teachers and other people involved in the organization, we practice doing as a free giving. And it works pretty well for us now these almost 30 years that we've been in existence. And uh, so the, this is the first thing the Buddha taught. It's like, can we give up stinginess, operating in our lives, in our relationships, from this stingy, greedy point of view, which is kind of built in. You know, you ever see kittens around food or puppies around food? There's some aggression around stinginess, like, no, 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 <laughs> I want my share, and I'm going to use whatever power I have to wrestle my way to that bowl or to that you know, my mother's breast or whatever they're feeding on to get my share, to get more than my share if I can, right? So it's a pretty radical teaching generosity in dana, which is, it really means the circle of giving and receiving and, and finding something like we, when we do it not because we're trying to look good, but we engage in dana and generosity as an exploration, we can actually discover there really is an enlivening circle. And you want to explore this in places in your life where you feel safe to explore, like where you don't have a lot of social pressure to look good. Nobody knows what you're doing. You know, it's like, for example, putting bird seed in your bird feeder. It could be a hassle to have to get out there every day and fill it up. Or the attitude could be this beautiful circle of giving and receiving, and it could turn out to be a very real, ordinary, but real source of joy in your life. Every day, you get to fill the bird feeder. And every month or two, you get to go buy some more bird seed so you can fill the bird feeder. And, you know, every once in a while, you rake all the husks under the bird feeder. But all of that could be part of this circle, you know, and you receive the activity of the birds and the sounds of the birds as a free giving, you know, and you take that in as a free gift, no strings attached, and you give the seed freely, no strings attached. And so we want to understand this 
this foundational teaching in Buddhism on giving up, renunciation, the happiness, the joy of letting go, the joy of renunciation. There's, you know, many ways the Buddha talked about it in his 45 years of teaching. Um, because it's so central, we want to, always, like whenever we're conceiving and thinking and reflecting about it and then seeing how that might actually be operating in my life, we want to see it as something that is joyful, that feels good, that is in the direction of putting down the burdensomeness, the weight in my heart. Because otherwise, because of our cultural conditioning and our animal conditioning, letting go and giving up will feel, you know, like even the word sacrifice, which could be a really beautiful spiritual teaching, it's sort of heavy because it means like, I'm, you know, exposing myself to death because I'm sacrificing something that I have, maybe to people or beings that have less, and I'm putting myself in harm's way because I'm sacrificing because I should, because I have more than some. And so we make a really heavy trip. It, it feels like we don't get anything in the deal. But see, that's a misunderstanding. And so in this context, you know, I mentioned the Buddha would often start his spiritual teachings by talking about the happiness of dana. Even people who didn't have a strong spiritual inclination, he would basically, you know, this is a really rough paraphrase, but hey, you want to be happy? Practice generosity. Practice giving up in a way that feels safe and then let the momentum build. Like as you realize that giving up, letting go feels good, then do more of it. And when you realize that that feels good, then do more of it. And go from doing it just externally to also doing it internally. What is it internally that we can give up? What comes to mind when you think like, what is happening internally in our body-mind that we can give up? Or we can give up being tight and defended and, and you know, armored. We can give up our fixed ideas, like being attached to our opinions. doesn't mean we don't have opinions. We can give up the fixedness, the certainty, the arrogant certainty that I'm right or that you're wrong. We can learn to give up anything that can be given up. And the thing is, we it, we imagine that it's going to kill us or that we won't be able to be functional if we give up. But have we actually, you and I, have we actually explored what happens when we give up being tight and embrace being released on all levels, just even on the level of physical tension? Like, what would it be to operate today being soft and released as opposed to bound up? And what would it be to operate in terms of my ideas about things, including my idea about me, who I am, let alone my ideas about who you are and what's what, what's up, what's down, what's good, what's bad, but have a lot of release, a lot of softness, a lot of non-fixedness around that. 
And uh, you know, in the in the Buddhist tradition, there are some stories about like if you really wanted to, you know, like a trickster god wanted to hide true happiness where nobody would ever find it. So this is just not a teaching from the Buddha. But, you know, if you had something incredibly special and you wanted to hide it somewhere, the key to life, the key to happiness, where would you hide it? Well, right here in our subjective experience, the place we never look. We're always looking kind of out there. And when I say out there, I also mean my thoughts about stuff. That's out there in a way in the so-called objective world. But right here in our subjective experience, there's a lot of tightness. This is what we discover when we have a regular meditation practice and we go on retreats when we can. Because just in the simplicity of the sit or the simplicity of the retreat schedule, it's like this amazing discovery. How tight, first we discover how much activity there is, worrying, planning, thinking, just busyness. And then when that, when we learn to be with that without judging it and getting tight about it, we realize there's just chronic holding in the body and the mind, a lot of bound upness. And there's really no letting go without making peace, actually learning how to be interested in all of that. And right in the middle, you know, of our being, let's say, we discover this key to happiness. It's just not what we expected. You know, it's not like a a golden calf, <laughs> a biblical reference there. What we find is like surprising, like what the key to happiness, not some special teaching, it's really this capacity to let go, to non to not cling, to not grasp to release all substrata of clinging. So not just letting go of my opinion, my attachment to my opinion, but letting go of the tendency to grasp onto my ideas about things. Letting go of the tendency to need, to imagine that there's somebody who needs solid ground even, a fixed location, a fixed definition. And this is what, in that third set of four instructions that we've been spending a lot of time with this last month, couple months really, uh, experiencing the space of the mind, appreciating, gladdening the space of the mind, quieting, concentrating the space of the mind, liberating the space of the mind. We're in that very refined, abiding in that refined space of the so-called knowing mind, openness. And in that refinement, we're learning how all intending, all doing can just cease. We're learning to abandon somebody trying to make something happen. So you could say, learning how to abandon all doing, all intending, and it's a particular kind of quietness, peacefulness. Not having to be a somebody trying to get somewhere. When we uh, study dependent co-arising, this really important teaching from the Buddha, 
you know, he maps it out just in different ways, but the basic map, and we're learning this in Monday night's class on mindfulness of feeling tone, the pleasantness of life, the unpleasantness of experience, and the neutrality. But because we have these six sense gates, we see, we hear, we smell, we taste, we touch, and we have mental activity, we have these six ways of knowing the world, and constantly there's contact through these six sense gates. We have experience. We see something, we think something, we touch something, we smell something. And right with that contact, the recognition that this experience is being known, there's a feeling tone of pleasantness or neutrality or unpleasantness. And we react to the feeling tone. Right? If it's pleasant, we want it. If it's unpleasant, we don't want it. If it's neutral, we ignore it. And so this tendency to crave the pleasant, crave to get rid of the unpleasant, crave to ignore the neutral, it sets in an activity, sets in motion this activity of grasping. We do something about my craving. And then we become a person who did something about craving. And we get, according to the Buddhist teaching, born into this whole mass of suffering. Right? We deepen the groove to react to sense experience with grasping. So what we're doing in our practice, you know, the first set of four instructions, we're learning to have a body. We're learning to have a mind, a heart that's sensitive to embodiment. And, and we're learning that this really calms the body down. When the mind realizes the body may not be perfect, may not fit my idea, but I don't have to cling to the idea of what, my, what I want my body to be. I can just choose to have a peaceful relationship with the body. And that's what calms it down. So we're letting go of our ideas of the perfect body and instead, we're relating wisely and kindly <clears throat> with the bodily experience. And that expresses itself as a pervading calm in the body. <clears throat> and then we realize there's a lot of mental activity. What's all this mental activity about anyway? Well, it's just the reverberations of all the stuff that happened in the past. Basically, all unfinished business that's that those tendencies to worry and plan and think and imagine and compare and you know all the other things <clears throat> the thinking mind perceiving mind does it's just the reverberation the whirlpools of what wasn't cleanly digested from our past it's just reverberating rattling around so by keeping in mind joy keeping in mind contentedness keeping in mind the aliveness of the present moment and the non-reactivity, then we can we learn to just let that mental activity be what it is. And in doing that and not reacting to mental activity, it quiets down. And when mental activity quiets down, we can do the third set of instructions. And it's not, you know, don't get confused about the linearity of how the teachings are offered because which is sort of getting the sense of how the practice can unfold. But it doesn't tell us how to 
do it in a given set. We just follow our nose. But when we, when the mental activity has quieted down, we have a lot of dispassion around thought. Thoughts are just thoughts. Then we can better intuit, sense, and abide in just the space of the present moment. Not the activity of the mind, not the activity of the body, but just the space of here and now. The open, empty of activity. Now the activity may be there, but it's in the background. We're not noticing or paying attention to the activity in the body, sensation, the activity of the mind, thought. Because we're in the forefront is the space of the present moment itself. Just like right now, isn't it possible for us to keep in mind the space of our room? Not what's in the space, like the table or the computer, but there is this space, this physical space, here and now. That's why space and consciousness, not what consciousness is knowing, did you see how that shifts the awareness? We're bringing to mind something subtle now. What's gross is like the activity of the body through the five senses, or the activity of the mind through the you know, thinking mind, emoting mind. But there's also, isn't it true, isn't there also this space in which all this activity manifests? And isn't it possible for us to keep it in mind? And to learn how to appreciate it, learn how to quiet it, learn how to allow everything to cease because the mind is orienting around the space, not around being somebody who has to do something, including being the one who's got to keep the space in mind. Even that can be abandoned because it's not actually needed. It may feel needed initially, you know, when we're at that ninth instruction. One trains oneself breathing in, experiencing the space of the mind. But the mind learns how to keep it in mind. And so it doesn't need that intentionality, that doing. And we get a little taste of the mind empty of all self-centered Activity, all self-centered, grasping, doing, intending. And the mind gets clear about what the practice is all about. And that's what we've been doing these last few weeks and for a few more weeks. And I just want to encourage people to feel free to send these last four weeks. And Win Fricky, the co-founder of Common Ground, will be teaching on April 23rd on this subject too, the 16th steps of the Buddha's instructions on mindfulness of breathing. So feel free to send to the center any questions you have and they'll get to me and I'll integrate them into the talks over these next four weeks as we finish up this uh, four-month uh, reflection on the, this really important teaching on mindfulness of breathing. But these last four instructions before we end today and this could be the contemplation for those who can stay for the small group discussion. I see Shannon is here. I think she'll be helping us with the small groups and when we end in about seven minutes. Um, 
you might contemplate just in ordinary ways where there was a natural giving up of something in your life and the the good reward, the wholesome reward you experienced because your heart was able to shed, was able to let go, was able to naturally give up something, whatever it was, a fixed idea, for example. And just because that, like in a small group, just sharing examples of how natural giving up can be, can really encourage us, as I said earlier, to well, what is giving up? What is the skillful kind of giving up? Because there's clearly unskillful giving up, right? But the skillful kind of giving up, giving up what needs to be given up, giving up what isn't helpful, what isn't needed. We want to take it to the nth degree. We want to be curious about what else could be given up. What else that's here isn't needed to be clung to, be held in any way. And the basic formula, it's said in different ways, but you know, when the mind is more secluded, more settled, then it's Buddha knowing Dhamma that I was talking about at the very beginning. So just that wakefulness, really experiencing Dhamma the way it is in a more refined, clear way. And what do we notice when we're really connected in a refined and balanced way? We notice how uh, ephemeral and insubstantial and uncertain, how impermanent everything is. And that's true whether we're observing the breathing in and breathing out, or whether we're observing thought or emotion. <clears throat> or for those of you in the Monday night class where we're studying feeling tone, this is especially relevant when we're observing a moment that's pleasant or a moment that's unpleasant. The unpleasantness itself, the pleasantness itself, is much more ephemeral than the thinking mind initially thinks. When I'm experiencing a lot of unpleasantness, the, t the tendency of my mind is to think this unpleasantness is just unacceptable. It's too much. It's overwhelming. Because... I'm imagining that the unpleasantness is, has a solidity that it doesn't actually have. And the thing is, it's a little self-fulfilling. If I imagine the unpleasantness is solid, it has a superficial appearance of being quite solid. But if we get interested in our pleasant moments and our unpleasant moments and our neutral moments, like where the mind's really it, actually, authentically curious and balanced, we'll see that the pleasantness, unpleasantness and neutrality is so fluid, it doesn't really demand a reaction of grasping what's pleasant, pushing away what's unpleasant, and ignoring what's neutral. We don't have to fall into those deep habits of our liking, disliking, and ignoring. And it, it really just limits our life to such a powerful degree when mostly our life is about liking, disliking, and ignoring. And that's kind of a simple definition of us when we're just an ordinary, untrained human being. We're just a being, being spun around by our liking, disliking, and ignoring. And this is what in the tradition we call samsara, 
being caught in cycles of liking, not liking, and ignoring, thinking that it's going to get me somewhere, like to happiness. And we've been spinning long enough to have realized it's not really getting me anywhere. This identification with liking, this identification with not liking, so that the not liking is synonymous with me. And those moments of liking is synonymous with me. And all those mostly unconscious moments of ignoring neutral experience, because it isn't pleasant or unpleasant, taking that need to ignore as me. Well, why bother? It's not relevant to me because it's neutral. And that really defines a lot of our existence, being identified with the liking, disliking, and ignoring of life, of life experience. And this is what we're letting go of. So the basic pattern is we were Buddha knowing Dhamma, and what do we see? We see Anicca, the changing, ephemeral, uncertain nature. And that's what grows the disenchantment and the dispassion. Don't need to grasp. So that's like a tendency, a spiritual tendency that builds momentum in the heart. But it depends on seeing things as they are. It depends on Buddha being awake to Dhamma. This deep, profound valuing of mindful awareness, present moment awareness. Because when we cultivate that momentum, that continuity of present moment awareness, we will see impermanence. We don't have to go looking for impermanence or uncertainty or the unreliable, ephemeral nature of experience, of feeling, tone. We just need to cultivate this valuing of present moment awareness. And then it will, because of the valuing of it, it will build a head of steam all day long, like today. We don't have to wait until our next sit or our next Buddhist residential retreat. We can just do what we're going to do anyway today. But first and foremost, the value is to be present. You can make lunch and eat lunch being present. You can play with your friends and clean up the house and even do stupid stuff being present. And this is how we build momentum not just regulating being present to our 30 minutes of formal meditation time, but we want that value of Buddha being intimate with Dhamma, the refuge. We want it to be our refuge all day long. We want to be Sangha all day long, living, responding, making choices from that intimacy of Buddha knowing Dhamma. Because that's what leads to the letting go. So for the next two weeks, I'll talk about Specifically, the letting go, the giving up, the opening to what in the tradition we call Nibbana. But that just means the cessation of everything that can be let go of. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org.
donate.